Hi, my name is Brooke. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely the goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Beth. Um, the New Testament reading is found in Hebrews 11:1 1 through 2. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Grace. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and I will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The Gospel of the Lord. Good morning, New Life Downtown. Peace be with you. And also with you, right? You guys are like this liturgical thing, right? Peace be with you. Okay, that's very good. It's such a joy to be here uh, with you this morning. Uh, like Daniel said, my name is Andrew Arndt, and I'm the pastor of Bloom Church in Denver, Colorado. Uh, for some context on that, if you know the band uh, Gungor, Michael and Lisa Gungor and all that. So that's the church that they somewhat accidentally started with some friends a long time ago and needed a pastor for. And so I came along to help out with that. And we've been there for the last five years and have had a whale of a time living in Colorado. Uh, for those of you uh, who are natives to Colorado, your state is amazing. We absolutely love living here. It's great. This is a, it's a huge honor and a privilege for me to be speaking at anything related to new life. Uh, I grew up a non-denominational charismatic kid in Marshfield, Wisconsin, which is in the middle of nowhere, literally. And uh, we had, there were like two like mythologically important places for us in our sort of religious like landscape. One was Tulsa and Oral Roberts University. And the other was this faraway place. It was like the Rivendell of our charismatic imagination, New Life Church, Colorado Springs. So like for me to be able to participate in this on any level is such a huge privilege. I know that you guys, uh, Glenn has a bit of a series going on how we're blessed and broken and sent and all that. And he asked me if I'd like to jump into that. And uh, I sort of asked him special permission to do something else. Um, And he granted me a special New Life Downtown dispensation to do that. Uh, we've been plodding through the 23rd Psalm at Bloom in Denver. And uh, the 23rd Psalm, whether you've been in the faith forever or are new to the faith, uh, you know it. There's something about the beauty and the power and the conciseness of the metaphor and how the metaphor is developed that really speaks to us in a profound way. I told my congregation back in Denver that we have this, uh, this little routine that we have in our family is before bed every night, I'll do a psalm reading with the kids, and then we'll spend some time thanking Jesus for the day and praying over each other and stuff. 
And uh, I just remember, this was a few years ago, I, my boys are eight years old, seven years old, I have a daughter who's five and another son who's two. And the boys, several years ago, as we were starting to read through the Psalms, I remember reading through the 23rd Psalm once, and I really liked it, and I did it again with them. And by the third night, they had it memorized. And there's something about the 23rd Psalm that just gets in us, and it becomes for us, if we'll let it, it'll become for us a sort of a universe, almost a, a map of what a life lived with God looks like. And so what I want to do for you this morning um, is just take one little piece of the 23rd Psalm and extrapolate it out and just create some space for you to ask some profound questions, I think, about the way that you're living your life with God, if that's okay with you. Would you do a favor with me uh, this morning? I'd like to invite us, just before we get into this, to have a moment of silence and stillness before God. And then what I'll do is I'll just read the 23rd Psalm over us, make a few comments about it, and then we'll get into communion. Okay with you? Let's still our hearts before the Lord. Merciful God, come, we pray, and open us up to the mystery of your presence. And help us in these few moments become still and know that you're God. Silence is such a profound thing. Our world, our lives are loud, they're so noisy. But when we become still, we find that there's a presence already with us. And there's nothing that we can do to earn it or strive to attain it, but it precedes us, it follows us, it's underneath us. We're still and receptive and open. And some of you walked in this morning and you have a lot of tension and anxiety and anger and there's a lot of impulses in you that are leading you to a place where your fists are clenched. But just in this moment, feel your fists, your body relaxing and coming to a place of openness before God. And now out of your stillness, hear the ancient words. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for the sake of his name. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint, you drench, you moisten my head with oil. My cup runs over. 
Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. David develops this profound metaphor about the Lord being his shepherd, and he's not in want. And within a very short couple verses, all of a sudden he pivots And we're no longer in this sort of pastoral setting, green pastures and quiet waters, but we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, right? And he says that even though I'm in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death, he says, I don't don't fear any evil because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And those words are so familiar to us. And we feel that. And many of us, many of you have experienced that at different points in your life, that you were, when you were in the darkest, the deepest and darkest place of your life, you knew the shepherding presence of God, that same presence that was with you when you were by the green pastures and the quiet waters and your soul was being restored, that presence carries on even in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death. And then David drops these really interesting, really interesting, almost contrasting images on us. He says, you prepare a table before me, where? In the presence of my enemies. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, You anoint my head with oil, and my cup is running over. The Jewish scholar Robert Alter writes this of this verse. You can put the first slide up on the screen. He says, this verse then lists all the physical elements of a happy life. A table laid out with good things to eat. This huge feast prepared for us. A head of hair well rubbed with olive oil. Oil in the ancient world is this precious commodity. And to have your hair, your head, your body rubbed with oil, it's a symbol of luxuriance, he says. And a cup overflowing with wine. Like you put your your cup out to the master of the banquet and they pour. And you go, wait, 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 stop, stop, stop. And they just keep pouring. You go, stop, stop, stop. It's almost at the top. And they just keep pouring. And the wine is just overflowing the sides of the cup. He says, you prepare a table before me. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. All of this. They're the physical elements of a happy life. And yet, where are they? Do you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies? You're anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows. The contrast of these things should not be lost on us. But here is this battle that is about to take place. The enemies are encroached around the psalmist David on all sides. And he says, you know what you're doing for me in the middle of this, God, when the enemies are encroached on every side and my life is about to fall apart and we're about to go to battle? He says, what are you doing? But you're laying out a banquet. Hey, David, come over here and eat. but But God, there's like a, you know, the battle and those people and they're about to kill me. Yeah, 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 David, I know, but like it's dinner time. The, the battle, you know, we'll get to that, but it's time to eat. And while we're sitting, here, let me pull out the oil. Just rub your body down, kind of give you a little shoulder massage, you know? And then, hey, where's your cup? And let's just, hey, drink it straight to the bottom. But don't worry about the battle, because it's time to eat and drink and rest in the luxuriance of God. There is a juxtaposition of images here that should not be lost on us. God is this sort of a God, apparently, who when he looks at the circumstances of our lives, there's a sort of studied nonchalance about what's going on. 
And instead, God's like, yeah, it's dinner time. Come and enjoy all of the things that make you a human being. Enjoy all of the things that keep your life robust and rich and healthy. This, it seems to me, as we survey the Old Testament text in particular, this seems to me to be a habit of God's. That he's trying to invite his people into a place where they're not so much determined by the stuff that's happening around them, but they're determined by the reality of who God is and what God is about and what God wills to be for them. When God brings his people up out of Egypt and starts articulating his law for them, one of the core laws, one of the core stipulations of the whole Old Testament framework of thinking is this notion of Sabbath. That one day in seven, everything stops. Everything stops. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care what is so important. I don't care what business venture you're in the middle of. I don't care what crisis is raging around you. I don't care about that. God says to his people, one day in seven, you will stop and you will remember the sacredness of time that I have created. He says it like this in Exodus chapter 31. Next slide. He says, you must, you must. It's like not a suggestion to these people. Because God doesn't want them determined by all the stuff that's raging around them, but he wants them determined by the reality of his presence. He says, you must observe my Sabbaths, and this will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come, so that you may know that I am the Lord who is making you holy. In other words, Israelites, as you enter into this time, as you stop being determined by all the stuff out there, but you start allowing yourself to be determined by my time, my goodness, my grace, my love for you, what will happen is you'll find yourself caught up in a sort of sanctification. Everything will begin to become holy for you. Next slide. He says it like this in Exodus chapter 34. Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the plowing, and the se- plowing season and the harvest, you must rest. God is like, I just don't give a rip what's happening. Yeah, I know that you could like get a lot more out of the harvest if you work that seventh day, but I don't want you determined by that. I want you determined by me. And I know that you might have some family crisis that's demanding all of your time and all of your effort and all of your energy, but I don't want you determined by that. It's Sabbath. Rest. Enter into my love. Enter into my peace. Enter into my joy and understand that you are not the one that makes time go around, but I am the one that makes the world go around. I am the one that makes time go around. I am the one that is sanctifying your life and blessing it with betterness. So enter into my time. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Even during the plowing and the harvest, even during all the craziness, family crisis, friends blowing up, everything is collapsing around us. Yeah, but we're going to enter into this space and this time and we're going to find God there. And this This command to Sabbath, to live in Sabbath, becomes the cornerstone of a whole way of thinking for these Israelites. In fact, so much is Sabbath constitutive of the Israelite existence that God says to them, oh, by the way, it's not just like one day in seven that you're going to rest, but one year in every seven years, you're just not going to plow and plant and harvest and reap and sow and any of that. Just nothing. Stop. One whole year. Everything lies fallow. And he says to them, and you might ask, well, what are we going to do in that seventh year? How are we going to eat? He says, if you follow this, if you live in this, if you live in the reality of you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, if you observe that seventh year, you know what's going to happen to you? He goes, I'm going to fill your barns with so much provision that you'll be eating your crops into the third year. 
center into this. Because you aren't the one that makes your life work. You aren't the one that makes the world spin. You aren't the one that makes time move by. But it's me. Enter into the joy of the Lord. It's there. It's all there for you right now. You prepare a table before me. Where? In the presence of my enemies. We might say it like this. Next slide. No, not that one. The one before it. There it is. God wants his people, we're anticipating the end here. God wants his people responsive to him. Responsive to him. And not reactive to the present circumstance. God wants his people responsive to him. And not reactive to the present circumstance. There's a profound difference between those two ways of living. One is determined by everything that's out here and everything that's coming at us. And it makes decisions and it builds momentum towards those things and react in reaction towards those things. Another way of life is rooted in something else. It's rooted in grace. It's rooted in God's provision, his sovereignty, his oversight of our lives. And those lives, the lives that are responsive and not reactive, become stable lives, wholesome lives, life-giving lives. My wife Mandy and I first began to wrap our heads around this um, when we were in seminary. Uh, so I finished up at ORU in 2003 and went up to Chicago to be in seminary. And it just so happened that the seminary that I went to um, had class Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, no class Friday. And my wife Mandy was a dental assistant, and she got a job at a local dentist's office in the area. And she also happened to have Fridays off. And so we have this like perfect kind of alignment of our schedules. And we'd been convicted for some time that we needed to get more deliberate about our own sort of observance of Sabbath, that there is a notion of holy time that we could enter into that might have some positive impact on our lives. And so we decided with the alignment of our schedules that we would just do that. Friday is the day. Nothing productive happens on Friday. We're not paying bills on Friday. We're not necessarily running errands on Friday. I'm not doing school on Friday. I'm not reading books. I'm not writing papers on Friday. I'm not picking up extra shifts at the restaurant to help pay for bills. We're not doing it. It's the commitment that Friday is holy to God. And I remember as we started to enter into that, the pressure to give that day up was always so immense. We are impoverished seminary students living in one of the most expensive cities in the United States. Now, I can't tell you how many Wednesdays and Thursdays would roll around and I'd go, good Lord, if I just worked a double shift on Friday, then I could make, you know, a couple hundred bucks or something like that, put that extra money in our pocket and that, that would help us. And still there would be that conviction. But no, this is like unto God. The Sabbath is for us, but it's unto God. It's our way of saying yes to God and not being determined by the circumstances. I can't tell you how many weeks would roll around and I'd go, good Lord, if I just took Friday and wrote that paper or studied for that, that exam or did that thing, man, that would, I'd be so set for Monday. And we'd go, no, 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 no. We can't do that. This Sabbath is unto God. And so Sabbath for us was we'd wake up late in the morning. I'd go for a long run. I loved running in the Chicago area. Mandy would kind of go to the store and she'd dink around at the store for a while. We'd come back to the house together. We'd maybe go to the mall and walk around or take a nap. We'd eat dinner together, and fall asleep on the couch. And we just had this rhythm that we entered into. And what I started noticing was that as we made that a priority in our lives, as we sort of entered into this space and said, 
yes, seminary is crazy. Graduate school is nuts. It's expensive. We have lots of bills to pay. There's all this stuff that's constantly flooding at us. But if we create this space and we just say no to all of that, what happens is there's this new sort of stability that steals into our lives everywhere. And all of a sudden, no longer are we feeling tossed about by all of the craziness of our lives. But there's like this bedrock of stability. And I started noticing personally that that intuition, that I don't need to be determined by all of that stuff out there, but I can be determined by the reality of God and God's time and God's love and God's goodness, it began to steal into everything. I remember even during some of the busiest exam seasons and all that business in seminary, that I'd still, no, no, I'm one of the people of God when I rise in the morning, I'm not just going to get started on my paper or whatever the exam is or studying, but I'm going to pray. I'm going to offer my heart up to God and my life up to God in this 30 minutes or 40 minutes or 50 minutes before any of the chaos happens. If I give this over to God, I'll trust that God will take care of us. And he did. It was shocking to me how often the bills were paid and how much I, I've, I'd come to this place of realization that this exam that I thought was going to take me 10 hours to study for, really the three hours that I wound up having because I took a Sabbath at that that was like enough. And I remember that there were times that there was even lines that I had to cross internally where it was like, you know, if I do this, if I take this Sabbath, if I rest on this day and I only have a few hours to do this project and I wind up getting a B on the project or B minus on the project. Now I was like straight A's through high school, graduated summa cum laude from ORU. Grades are like this huge thing for me. But to come to a place where you go, you know, like maybe in God's economy of things, I don't depend on the A for my existence. Maybe the B is okay. Maybe the C is okay. And maybe God is more important that my humanness is respected. Maybe for God, it's more important that my humanness is respected than it is for him that I'm this produ- producing, overachieving whiz. So there's something about entering into the reality of God's space, God's time, not being determined by the circumstance, but being determined by the reality of God that has this power to change our lives. And several years later, at the church in Denver, this was just a couple years ago now, um, as we were just kind of getting started, we just had a couple staff members. It was me and uh, two other guys, a couple uh, younger pastor guys. And as we were sort of entering into figuring out what holding this ministry for this church would look like for us, I remember saying, guys, you know, I think that we've got to, like, we can't just be like cogs in the wheel of this church. We've got to find a way uh, to have our lives rooted in holiness. I said, so what if, what if as a staff, what if we developed uh, a rule of life? And if you don't know what a rule of life is, down through the centuries, Christians have used rules of life. They're these sort of constellation of spiritual practices that keep their lives grounded in the holy, grounded in a sense of wonder, grounded in the divine. And I said, what if we just created our own rule of life? And it was this thing that we lived by together as a community of pastors here, a set of core commitments that we felt like would keep us on the straight and narrow with God and keep us in a place where our lives were whole and wholesome and robust. I said, so what, what if we did that? And they loved that idea. And so we developed this rule of life. And the rule of life basically set out daily practices of prayer, weekly practices and rhythms of Sabbath. If you were married, uh, date night was part of our constellation, the rule of life. We had monthly practices um, like fasting, semesterly practices, like taking a solitude retreat. It was this whole constellation of practices that keep our lives grounded in God, whole, wholesome, holy, and robust. And every week before the business of staff meeting would start, we would get together and we would just talk about how we were doing with the rule of life and we'd pray for each other. And I can't tell you how many times 
we would get in that space where we were talking about, look, how are you, how are you doing in terms of living in the you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies? How are you doing living in that? How's the rule of life going for you? And somebody at the table would go, guys, I just, man, I just did a, I did a crummy job praying this week. We go, okay, all right, all right. But can, let's talk about that for a second. Why, why did you do a crummy job praying this week? What's, what's behind that? They go, you have no idea. Like I just, you know, this thing just, you know, my wife's family, everything is kind of going nuts with that. And then we had this thing that just happened and we had to attend to that. And then I had this doctor's appointment and da, 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 da. And of course, there's all of this work that we have to do at the church and yada, 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 yada. And we go, well, wait, 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 wait. So, but in the middle of all of that, you just couldn't like, you just couldn't pray, even if it was like for 10 minutes to give yourself up to God, to encounter the face of God in the beauty of holiness, you really do think. And as we like peel apart the issues more and more, it would become obvious that the reason that we were excluding God's time and getting into our own time was because we didn't have confidence that God was capable of running our lives. So I have to respond to this thing. No, this thing is happening. I have to do this. No, you don't get all of this work. If I don't do all of this stuff, everything will fall down. Will it? Listen, are you the one that hung the sun and the stars? Are you the one that makes the world spin? Are you the one that marks off the boundaries of the oceans? Are you the one that caused the mountains to rise up out of the heart of the sea? Is that you? We are tiny infinitesimally small specks of dust in this wide universe that God has created. I've often said to people, you know, there are 7 billion people on planet Earth. That means that we represent one, each of us represents one seven billionth of the possible volitional energy for making the universe go in the entire, in terms of the human experience, in, time, in terms of the whole, like we, we contribute almost nothing. Who makes it go? God makes it go. All of this, it seems to me, boils down to a matter of faith. Do we believe that God is the one who makes the universe spin? Do we believe that God is the one who makes our world spin? Do we believe that there is an invisible reality of luxuriance, of provision, of goodness, of grace? Do we believe that the everlasting arms are underneath us and around us and wrapping us up at all times? Or do we believe that we're alone in the universe, that our volition is the only thing that matters, and that if we don't look out for ourselves, nobody else will. See, it comes down to, if you ask me, it comes down to a matter of faith. Now, when I was a kid, growing up in a more or less charismatic uh, home, uh, the notion of faith was a very clear and singular, singular one to me. Faith was a thing that you had in the moment that got you something that you did not have in the future, okay? And so you need a scholarship to ORU or something, and you have some faith for that, and then this thing that you do not currently possess, it comes to you, you know? Or you need this situation to resolve itself, and so you exert a lot of faith, and then that thing that you do not currently have comes to you. But I think over the years as I've grown with faith and lived with faith, what I've come to see is that faith is not so much about exerting some kind of confidence that the thing that you do not currently have will come to you. But faith is this sort of resting in the reality that everything that we already need is provided for us right now in the moment. And therefore, we can echo what the psalmist says. The Lord is my shepherd. I don't have any, I don't have any wants. 
I don't have any needs. Now, I know I do kind of need stuff in this moment, but underneath all of this is the reality of God. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray, by the way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. It's all here already right now. Like the writer of Hebrews says, faith is the substance of the things that we do hope for, and it's the evidence of the things that we do not see. Which is to say that if we have the faith and if we've cast ourselves into the invisible reality of God, then everything that we need to make a coherent, wholesome, full of God kind of life is already provided for us in the present moment. The Lord is my shepherd. I don't have any needs. It's all here right now, right here. The challenge is making ourselves at home in that reality and learning to trust it. And it's not, an all, it's not at all unlike some of the things that we encounter in our lives. I, like Daniel said, I have uh, four little kids and our oldest boys, Ethan and Gabe, uh, within the last few years, have, uh, they've been learning how to ride two-wheelers. You know how it is. You have a little bike with training wheels, and the training wheels are so wonderful. So much stability. You can just kind of ride recklessly, you know. And your parents talk to you about this day, and it sounds horrible to you when you're four years old. One day, Ethan, Ethan is my oldest, one day, Ethan, we're going to take the training wheels off, you know, and you're going to ride. And I, I just remember the look on Ethan's face when he was about four years old, and I told him that, hey, son, guess what? One day, Mom and I are going to take the training wheels off, and you're just going to ride that bike. He looked at me like I was speaking in Russian or something. I, that, that, that's impossible. How could anybody ride without training wheels? That is, that is not possible. And so one the summer of his fifth, uh, his fifth birthday, I took the training wheels off of his bike, and I got him in the backyard. Our backyard's not very big, but I thought it was a nice, safe place to start. And so I kind of got him over on the edge of the yard. And so I said, okay, Ethan, now here we go. Now here's the deal. Listen, those training wheels helped you, but the truth is you actually can balance on the two wheels. And I know that you think that you can't do it, but I know that you can do it. Now I have, I have good evidence that shows that five-year-olds can do this. They said, but the thing is, the thing is, and this is going to be like really counterintuitive to you, I said, Ethan, But the thing is, the faster you go, the safer you're going to be with all of this. Now, I know that that sounds like the dumbest thing you have ever heard your father utter. But I promise you, if you try to go slow with this, you're just going to fall right over. It's not going to be good. So just go fast. So I'm going to give you a boost. And you just pedal like you have never pedaled in your life, you know. And so we gave it a try. You know, one, two, and three. Three, and I remember watching Ethan, it was a few, and then you'd see him kind of hedge his bets, you know, oh, boom, and he'd sort of fall over. And Ethan did this five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times, and I started realizing the problem is, for Ethan, the yard is too small. It's like not enough space for him to learn this. So I said, Ethan, let's grab your bike, throw it in the van, we're going to the park. So I take him to the park, and I get him all set up, and I say the same thing. Now we've got hundreds of yards of grass in front of us, you know. And I go, Eat, this grass is nice and soft in case you fall down, so this is a good place for us to be. I said, but I swear on my life, the faster you go, the more you cast yourself, this is my extrapolation of this for you here, the more you cast yourself into the reality of the physics that make this thing go, gravity and everything that's working here, the more you just throw yourself into this, I promise the safer you'll be. So dad's going to give you a one and a two and a three, and when I let you go, you pedal like you've never pedaled before. Pedal like your life depends on it. Are you ready? Eth goes, yeah, I'm ready. You know, one, 
two, and then I start kind of running with him, and I let him go. And to watch that boy, like he kind of wobbled at first, and to watch him ride 150 yards, and the joy, the look of joy in his face when he got done and hopped off of it, this elation, like, wait, there is a thing out there. I don't understand all of these laws, and I don't need to understand them, but all I know is that, Dad, you were right. That if I pedal real fast and real hard, if I cast myself into the invisible reality of this thing, riding without the training wheels is so much better than riding with the training wheels. So I think that faith is something like that. I don't know how this all works. I don't know how it works that God makes our lives spin, that he's upholding our lives with some kind of goodness and grace. I just know that it does work. And we cast ourselves into the reality of it, wholeheartedly abandon ourselves to it, And what we begin to find is that we really can sort of, like Peter did, we walk on water. It's not clear how we're doing it, but by God, we're doing it. My other son, Gabe, who's a year younger than Ethan, as he started seeing his brother riding on two wheels, we could tell that he was provoked in some way by that. But he didn't want to, his, his, Feelings of longing to be able to ride a two-wheeler were disavowed longings. So we'd always say to him, Gabe, you want us to take the training wheels off your bike? He'd go, no, Dad, no, never. Go, okay, we're going to try to respect the kid's wishes, you know. So his fifth birthday rolls around. We left the training wheels on. Sixth birthday rolls around. Gabe, do you want us to take the training wheels off? No, 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 don't take them off. Okay, we respect his wishes. He turned seven this past summer, and he's still, like, riding with training wheels, you know. And it's coming to the point of embarrassment. (laughs) But he won't let us take them off. He's just too scared. And so finally, I just said to him, I was like, Gabe, I'm your dad. You can do this. I'm taking them off. So I took his training wheels off, and I tried to work with him in the backyard the same way that I did with Ethan. And Gabe, I would let him go, and he'd kind of pedal a little bit, but I could see him in his mind hedging his bets, you know, trying to keep himself safe and all that. And he just keep falling over and scraping his knees and getting his legs all tangled up in the spokes. So it was just super sad. <laughs> I mean, I can laugh about it now. Actually, I was kind of laughing about it then. And... <laughs> but it is sad. And the turning point for Gabe came about a month ago, maybe, a month and a half ago, maybe. The Grothy family was over at our house. And Daniel, one of his boys, is a little bit younger than Gabe, Wilson. And Wilson saw my oldest son, Ethan, was riding around in circles in the backyard, and Wilson saw Ethan riding. And so Wilson grabbed Gabe's bike. Wilson, who is younger than Gabe, actually pretty significantly younger than Gabe. Wilson jumps on Gabe's bike, and he starts riding around circles in the backyard too. And we watched Gabe over in the corner looking at Wilson riding around in circles, and he's just got his hands in his face, you know, like, like what is the matter with me? Like, that looks so fun. And the longing awakens in his heart. And so the growthies leave. A couple days later, I go, Gabe, what Wilson did. That's pretty sweet, eh? You want to do that? He goes, yeah. I go, let's go to the park. Let's make it happen. So we go to the park. I set him on the bike. I do the same thing with Ethan. I go, Gabe, you have to trust me in this. The faster you go with this, the more you cast yourself into it, the safer you are. And I gave him the one, two, three, and the same thing. Bam, he goes for 100 yards. And when the bike fell over and he jumped off it, I, I have never seen such a look of joy on a kid's face. I, I think that the reason that we don't live into this more is that we, like Gabe, hedge our bets. We want to trust it, but we don't really trust it. 
So we find ways to not trust it. And we subvert prayer and we subvert Sabbath. And we become, rather than responsive to the goodness of God, rather than grounded in the reality of the invisible God who's upholding our lives, we become reactive to everything that's happening around us. And it's the wrong way to live because it robs us of the joy that's available to us. There's a fantastic story that's told in the book of 2 Kings chapter 6. Elisha is the prophet in Israel. And there's this king and this nation, Aram, that's coming against Israel. And every time the nation of Aaron starts making some plot against Israel, God tips off Elisha, and Elisha knows where they're going to be, and so he goes to the king of Israel, and he goes, hey, you might want to just pay attention to this because I think they're going to be over here. And so Israel's anticipating Aram every time. Well, the king of Aram is furious about this, and he goes, it's that prophet Elisha is doing this, so let's go and find him. If we kill the prophet, then we'll take down Israel. And so they go to the city that Elisha is staying in, the city Dotham, and Elisha is there with his servant. And the servant goes, oh, Elisha. Now the king is like, the king of Aram has surrounded this city with horses and armies and chariots and this whole thing. And the servant of Elisha goes to Elisha and he says, hey, uh, the, city is, the city is surrounded. Like, we're in really big trouble here. And Elisha says to him, don't be afraid. Because those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he prays. He says, God, open his eyes so that he can see. And the servant opens his eyes, and behind and around, surrounding all of the armies of Aram, he sees the hills filled with horses and chariots of fire. God is with us. And that moment did not create those things for the servant. It's just that his eyes were open to the reality of them. He anoints our head with oil in the presence of our enemies, preparing a table. Our cup overflows already. It's already true. This is why Jesus says, pay attention to the birds. Look at the grass. Don't you see? They don't sow or reap, store away in barns. The the grass of the field, it's not spinning clothes for itself or worrying about any of that business. So you, you're so much more precious to God. Why are you worrying about all of this? You just seek the kingdom. You just live your life in the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of this stuff will be taken care of because it all already is taken care of for you. God is already with you. See, there are some of you in here, some of us in this room this morning, that if we're honest with ourselves, the lives that we live are totally reactive. In every conceivable way, they're reactive. We're reactive to the way that people treat us. We're reactive to what's happening at our job. We're reacting to the circumstances that are happening at our church or within our families, relationships, the stock market, what's happening in the news. We're reactive. And because of that, what we've done is we've built anxious and deeply fearful lives because we're trying to hedge our bets and just protect ourselves against all of this business. And and the sense of awe and wonder and mystery and goodness that should be a part of our lives is not a part of our lives because we're constantly reactive. But every once in a while, and you've seen these people, you run into people that are not reactive to circumstance, but they're responsive. They live their lives rooted in somewhere else. And that feeling of provocation that we get, that life could be better than what it is, I know that because I see it in somebody else, that's a feeling you ought to entertain in your heart, like Gabe entertained it in his heart. Because seeing other people walk on water is a really inspiring thing for us. And it's not just that Peter is some special guy, it's that all of us are invited to do this. So I want to invite you here. There's a question that's up on the screen as we prepare our hearts for communion. Where is your life reactive to the present circumstance rather than responsive to the invisible reality of God?
you take a minute to sort of close your eyes and recenter yourself, I want you to ask that question. Let it become a deep and sort of profound probe into the warp and woof of your life. Where is your life? Where is your decision-making process? Where are you reactive to the present circumstance rather than responsive to the invisible reality of God? For some of you, it might be that when you find yourself in certain situations with other people, you have this tendency to react rather than respond out of grace, and you know what that situation is. There's a better way to live. Some of you, you have something that's happening in your family that's causing this sort of flare-up of reactivity in you. And at the edges of your consciousness, at the edges of your imagination, you hear the whisper, the invitation of Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added unto you. For some of you, it's your job. You're in the middle of a situation at your job. It's pretty up and down. Everything's in flux. And because of that, rather than taking everything with a sense of pace and a sense of timing, a sense of rhythm, rather than anchoring yourself in the notion that God is the one who prepares a table before us, even the presence of our enemies. You've got yourself all worked into this tizzy over this thing that's happening with your job, forgetting that you are tethered to the one who said, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. Brothers and sisters, the anxiousness The worry, the fear, the fret, all of the stuff that makes our lives negative, that toxifies them with hell, none of that has to be. None of it has to be. For the Lord is our shepherd, and we shall not be in want. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads us beside quiet waters. He restores our souls. He guides us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we shall fear no evil for he is with us. His rod and his staff will comfort us. And he's going to prepare a table before us. In fact, he has prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He's anointed our heads with oil. Our cups are running over Surely goodness and mercy are going to chase us down all the days of our lives and we will find ourselves led into the everlasting rest of God. We shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When we come to the table of the Lord, we are coming to the table that is prepared for us in the presence of our enemies. Brothers and sisters, everything is here for us already, right now, right here. God is with us.